And I invite the rest of us to open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. If you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you, that's on page 814. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. Imagine if God had finally had enough and had chosen to punish America for our many sins. Imagine if God used the great northern empire of Canada to do it. Imagine if the mighty Canadians came and they broke through our defenses and they attacked our homes, they ravaged our infrastructure, they took us away in chains to work the oil fields of the far north. Imagine if we and our children were forced to toil away, to eke out an existence in the bleak and inhospitable wilds of the far frigid north. Imagine if during that time of suffering, God raised up prophets among us and they brought us God's word, calling us to repentance for our many sins, but also offering us mercy and, and holding out hope that one day God would bring us back home and settle us again in our own country. There we would grow and we would flourish beyond anything we'd experienced before and God's face would shine on us again and God would make us a blessing to the world, one nation once again under God. Imagine if after many years there was a regime change in Canada and our captors allowed some of us to go home. Those of us who were young when we went into captivity were now old, past the prime of our life, but our hopes lived on in our children and their children. Imagine we come back to New York and to our dismay, we find the place is barely recognizable after all these years. Many of our houses are gone or they're just overgrown piles of, of rubble or lumber and others are being occupied by strangers. The roads are in disrepair. Many are beyond use. The bridges are, are washed out in many cases. Rivers and streams now impassable. Electricity and phone service is nearly non-existent. Many yards and fields have grown up into forests and need to be cleared. Coyotes and wild dogs roam in savage packs. Bears and mountain lions have moved back into the area. Gone are the stores and the hospitals, the schools, the sewers and the water systems. There's no police force, no rule of law. The territory we once called home is now controlled by several warlords, some from Canada, some poorer Americans who were left behind who've moved up from the city. They're not necessarily happy that we're back. As the months pass, the, the high hopes that we had quickly wane. We struggle just to survive, to get old wells going again, to get water, to, to grow food or find food from somewhere, to build shelters. Where is the wonderful new life that God's promise, prophets had promised? Where is God's help? Things are not better. We are in anguish and despair. We're watching our children and our grandchildren die of, of dysentery and of diseases that we took for granted because we were immunized against them. Not a month goes by that someone we know doesn't lose their life from disease or, or wild animals or, or in local violence. We live in constant insecurity. Will the, the crops that we are trying to plant, will we eat them or will someone else come and steal them in the night? Will we live in the shelter that we're building or will someone powerful drive us off the, fraud, the land with fraudulent claims that it's really their land? 
And in all of this, though we worship diligently, though we, we uh, cry out in prayer, we feel abandoned by heaven. Imagine. Well, it was to a people in a situation very much like that that Isaiah addresses this wonderful prophecy in Isaiah 65. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever. I will take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. What a picture, huh? As best we can tell, this prophecy was likely addressed to God's people living around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, who we're going to begin looking at next Sunday. These were people who faced a situation very much like the one I described earlier as they came home to Jerusalem from their long exile in Babylon, and they attempted to rebuild the rubble of their lives. And Isaiah's prophecy here in our passage is an amazing vision filled with hope for a wonderful future to encourage these despairing people. It's a passage which has captured the imaginations of countless believers ever since, down through the ages, as this famous painting by the Quaker artist Edward Hicks attests. At the same time, biblical interpreters have a lot of questions about this passage. For example, how literally should we take it? Are, the, are these uh, metaphors here, or will lions literally one day become big, cuddly, harmless pussycats who eat grass, while wolves cozy up with lambs? And if so, when will this happen? Is this passage describing an earthly millennial kingdom that some believe that Jesus the Messiah will one day establish from Jerusalem before the final judgment and the end of history? Or uh, rather, if this view is correct, then how do we explain that there's no mention here of the Messiah King who would establish this kingdom, but rather Isaiah says that this will happen when God creates a new heavens and a new earth? Doesn't um, that language suggest a time beyond history when the New Testament tells us God forever and, and finally replaces this current earth with a new creation which will be eternal and perfect? But that doesn't make sense either, because in Isaiah's vision, people are still dying. Children are still being born. But in the new creation, there will be no more death, and babies presumably won't be born, because Jesus seems to say there'll be no marriage or reproduction in that final eternal state. And if we're talking about a whole new creation, then why the focus primarily on Jerusalem in this passage, especially in verses 18 and 19, as well as the last verse, which is a very local and specific place on this current earth? So what are we to make of this passage? Is it a hope for an eternal age in a, in a, a distant future? 
Or is it a hope for an earthly kingdom in a potentially somewhat nearer future? And here's perhaps an even more pressing question. Is this vision something God alone will do that we just wait passively for? Or is it a vision of what we ourselves should be working toward? Well, for Isaiah's first hearers, perhaps at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, none of these questions would have even been in their minds. Because they knew nothing um, of a millennial kingdom yet, nor did they have a clear or as clear of a picture as we do of an eternal age beyond this present one. For them, a people struggling to survive, full of despair and, and discouragement as they buried their babies, as they worried whether what they worked hard for would be taken away by others, as they wondered whether God had abandoned them. For them, this prophecy spoke clearly enough. Hold up your heads. Hang in there. Have hope. God hasn't forgotten you. God will have mercy on you. Better times are coming. You see, the people Isaiah is addressing were a people who had just experienced 70 or more years of, of living under God's punishment and curse. They and their parents had in the past willfully and consistently rejected and rebelled against God. And God had already told them way back in the book of Deuteronomy what would happen if they were unfaithful to God in this way. They would be cursed. They would work hard and others would reap the fruits. Their lives would be cut short. They and their children would suffer disease and disaster. You can read about that in the book of Deuteronomy, especially in either chapter 28 or 38. And sure enough, all of these curses of Deuteronomy had come true and were coming true at that time for the people of God who had been unfaithful to God. Now, if you read the book of Isaiah, all through the book, especially from chapter 40 onward, God was pleading with his people at that time to, to turn back to him. This is at the time of the exile and after the exile to turn back to God so he could bless them again. But again and again, they, they argued with him and they refused. But to those who did repent, to those who did turn back to God, God, through the prophet Isaiah, held out great hope. God would one day replace his curses with blessings, abundant blessings. And we see this in our passage. God would overturn the curses of Deuteronomy. But even more, God would overturn every curse. Even the original curses, when you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, these were the curses, for example, uh, from the time of Noah's flood, which, uh, or when in response to increasing wickedness in the world at that time, the Bible tells us God had cut the human lifespan down from hundreds of years to 120 years or less. You can read about that in Genesis 6. Then in Genesis 9, you read that God made the animals fearful of people and, and allowed herbivores to become carnivores. Also, going back even further to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, when the first humans disobeyed God and they were exiled from the garden, they were sent out to scratch out an existence through hard toil from the cursed land, and there was enmity between them and the serpent, and the serpent would strike them. And these were, there were all these curses, but now in Isaiah's prophecy, they are all starting to come undone. The serpent is going to eat dust and nothing more. Work is going to become easier and rewarding. 
The animals are going to live in harmony and return to eating vegetation. Lifespans are going to increase again. Nobody would take away what you worked so hard for. Children would thrive and would not die. All the, these curses of Adam and Eve, of Noah, of Deuteronomy are being rolled back in our passage here in Isaiah. In Isaiah's visions, paradise is being restored. And so for those discouraged former exiles still struggling under all of these curses, very aware of the cursedness of their situation, this prophecy enables them to begin to live in hope that as they turn back to God in repentance and faith and become faithful to him again and look to him, they can look for the fulfillment of these blessings. They can keep working hard. They can hang in there because while there may be more troubles along the way, they know that the day is coming when God will remake all things in such a way that the troubles they're now going through will be less than a distant memory. All right, now, as it turns out, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies here were still hundreds of years away. What, what the people back then hoped for would not be fulfilled in the lives of their children or even their grandchildren's children. Perhaps in part because so few of them really did turn back to God, as we'll see when we look at Ezra and Nehemiah. But we also have to recognize that on God's time clock, a thousand years is like a day. God's work in history rolls on so slowly, so excruciatingly slowly, and so believing in God is very often a matter of waiting, waiting, patiently waiting. Okay, well, let's follow the, let's fast forward the story forward now in history to begin to see where we come in. We have the luxury of blowing through the next 500 years in just a moment and see what Isaiah's wonderful prophecy begins to mean to us which is not, I don't think, for us to spend all our time trying to figure out how to fit this prophecy into our theological schemes of how the world is going to end. But it's rather to fill our hearts and to fill our imaginations with this amazing vision, with this picture of the future, and with the story of how God has been faithful to begin to work out his purposes in history already to, to bring or, and to keep a people for himself, to, to graciously include us in his wonderful plans to redeem, to restore, to bless the world. Isaiah's prophecy here begins to come to fulfillment some 500 years after the time it's addressed to in the coming of Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself put it when he come onto the, came onto the scene after all these years of waiting, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That statement means that Jesus came to inaugurate this kingdom, this new heavens and new earth, this new age, which Isaiah 65 and many other prophecies foretold. And so we can see glimpses of Isaiah's vision in our passage beginning to be fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus gave dying children back to their parents, alive. Jesus extended the lives of those whose health was failing. Jesus fed those who were hungry and provided for those who were poor. Jesus dealt the serpent a fatal blow and began casting out the serpent's minions. 
Jesus brought God's answer to those who were calling out. Jesus rejoiced and delighted over God's people. In the coming of Jesus, the New Testament is clear. The kingdom of God, the new creation, has broken into history. And yet, as you've heard me say so many times, there's an already but not yet nature to this new age, this new kingdom. In Jesus, prophecies like this one in Isaiah and so many others have already begun coming true, but they have not yet fully come true, right? <laughs> Even among those who love and follow Jesus, parents still bury their infants in anguish. Wild animals still attack and devour. Sometimes it's automobiles these days. People still work hard only to have the fruit of their labor get swallowed up by someone else. People still cry out to God, and sometimes it seems that God doesn't answer. Listen to how John de Grushi, a, a South African Bible interpreter, describes the not yet of Isaiah's vision in, in a very tangible and contemporary way. He says, the vision holds out the promise that infant mortality will be reduced and that the aged will have adequate health care. That is, that those who are most vulnerable in society, children and the aged, will be given the support they need. Children in order that they can grow to maturity, and the aged in order that they can live out their lives in dignity. The vision holds out the promise that everyone will have adequate housing and shelter. Not only that, but that they will be able to live in the homes they have built without fear of losing them. No uprooting and dumping into refugee camps. No bulldozing of properties so that others can take them over. No apartheid legislation decreed, decreeing forced removals to a distant alien land. We could add no more foreclosures. But they will not only possess their own homes, but they will also have the freedom and the right to grow their own crops and to eat what they have produced. No slave labor that provides food for the rich but robs the poor of what they have grown through the sweat of their brow. And by extension, within our present economic order, no rampant capitalist exploitation that widens the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Childbearing will no longer be regarded as a way to provide extra hands to deal with poverty or as a means to ensure old-age care. Children will no longer be sold into slavery of whatever kind in order to earn money so that their parents can eke out a living. Children will no longer roam the streets in search of scraps to eat or in search of drugs to dull pain or in search of tourists to rob to buy food or cocaine. Children, according to this vision, will be blessed by God. They will be able to be children, and so also will their children. Then he concludes, the final part of this vision is one of harmony amongst God's creatures, with the serpent, the evil one, literally biting the dust. Here is a radical vision of the environment being restored to its pristine character as bitter enemies are reconciled. Isn't that a great contemporary picture of what Isaiah's vision is pointing toward? The vision means all of that. It certainly means much more as well. And since the coming of Jesus, all of this has already begun happening often through the work of Christ's followers who combat slavery and child labor and sex trafficking, who build hospitals and, and work as missionary doctors, who work for justice, who overturn tyrants, who serve the poor, who pray for the sick, who share the good news that through Jesus Christ we can be reconciled to God. 
And yet the new creation has not yet fully come by any means. Isaiah's vision still remains to be fulfilled. So what does all of this mean for us today? What do we do with this vision and the tension of the age that we live in, the, the already but the not yet? Well, we begin by soaking ourselves in Isaiah's vision and others like it, realizing that it presents what God wants for this world. God never wanted to curse the earth. It wasn't God's intention that, that babies should die, that the elderly would not live out their years, or, or that people would work hard and then have it all swept away or stolen by others. No, God meant for a world where life flourishes, where there's justice and opportunity, where there's peace and safety. It's when we turn from God that we dash the stream and we bring trouble into the world. But Isaiah gives us hope not to despair, but to trust that God will indeed restore the world one day to his original intention for it. And so this vision encourages us. It, it teaches us God's heart. It gives us hope as it shows us where God is steering world history and where it's all headed. And since the coming of Jesus, this vision also shows us as his followers what Christ's kingdom is about and, and what we're to work for as we seek Christ's kingdom. Not that we think we can bring in utopia or, or that we think somehow we're going to bring about God's new heavens and new earth. No, but rather we realize that Christ came to inaugurate this kingdom and then he left us to continue that mission until the day that Christ returns to fully bring it to fruition. Because while much of the fulfillment of these things remains in the not yet of Christ's return, more than we realize is possible already as we follow Christ and as we carry out his mission as his disciples, as he told us we will do greater things than him. Theologians today put it this way. They, they say that, we as God's people get to be a sign, a foretaste, and an instrument of God's kingdom. A sign, a foretaste, and an instrument. First, we get to be a sign. We may not be able to bring heaven to earth, but we get to be a sign that heaven is coming. When we stand for Isaiah's vision, for this way of life, when we work toward it, when we pray for the sick, when we share the good news about Jesus, when we work to reduce infant mortality rates, and we work for dignified care for the elderly, for affordable health care for all, for an economic system where hard work results in adequate pay and access to capital. As we live for these priorities, we stand in the world as a prophetic sign that God's new heavens and new earth are coming. Second, we also get to be a foretaste. As people get to know us, as they get to see how we live and how we treat others, as they get involved in our community, they should get a taste of what God is like of what is coming in the future when God brings into being his purpose, his intention, his new heavens and new earth. People should be able to taste it now through us. They should be able to taste the justice, the compassion, the health, the healing, the freedom. They should be able to taste God's love for them. And lastly, we get to be an instrument, a means through which God's kingdom comes into being. As we help people get to know Jesus, the king of God's kingdom. 
the one through whom the curse is being rolled back as people are reconciled to God and God delights in them afresh. As we work with people and and we pray for them and Christ transforms them and invites them to leave behind their old idols and allegiances and to seek first Christ's kingdom. As we serve people and we care for them and we work for truth and for justice and for compassion and for mercy. In all these ways and many others, we as God's people get to be instruments of God's kingdom. Let me close with a story uh, told by Ray Bakke, who has worked for years as a Christian in the inner city, seeking to bring um, more of the kingdom to dark and broken places. He says, I knew an old Glasgow professor named MacDonald, who, along with a Scottish chaplain, had bailed out of an airplane behind German lines. They were put in a prison camp. A high wire fence separated the Americans from the British. And the Germans made it very difficult for the two sides to communicate. While MacDonald was put in the American barracks and the chaplain was put with the Brits. Every day the two men would meet at the fence and exchange a greeting. Unknown to the guards, the Americans had a little homemade radio and were able to get news from the outside, something that was more precious in a prison camp than even food. Every day, MacDonald would would take a headline or two to the fence and share it with the chaplain in the ancient Gaelic language indecipherable to the Germans. One day, news came over the little radio that the German high command had surrendered and the war was over. MacDonald took the news to his friend and then stood and watched him disappear into the British barracks. A moment later, a roar of celebration came from the barracks. From that moment, life in that camp was transformed. Men walked around singing and shouting, waving at the guards, even laughing at the dogs. When the Germans finally heard the news three nights later, they fled into the dark, leaving the gates unlocked. The next morning, Brits and Americans walked out as free men, yet they had truly been set free three days earlier by the news that the war was over. That's what Isaiah's vision does for us. It is that news. That's the difference that Isaiah's vision makes for us as a community of God's people. Let's pray. God, this passage from your word stirs up our longing for what's to come when you remake all things. And we wait for it and we long for it. And yet, God, we're also challenged by it to begin to live into it already as we follow Jesus, who inaugurated this kingdom now in the midst of history. I pray that we would put aside our own hopes and aspirations for our own lives to the extent that we can embrace your hopes and aspirations for this world, that we can seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and that we can do what we can, not that we We think that we're going to make the world perfect, but that we could provide prophetic signs and give people tastes of what's coming as the new creation breaks forth first in us as a community of your people who follow your King, Jesus Christ. We pray for more of that new creation in our lives, in our fellowship, in our community, and then spilling over to those that we know and love in the community around us. In Jesus' name, amen.